Welcome into Dragon Ball Super Dope. My name is Kyle. Thank you for checking this out. So, as you may know, if you listen to the show, we have been doing this project in between in between important weeks where there's like news about the movie or a new manga chapter or whatever. And we're tackling all of the Dragon Ball movies in a row. Yes. So this is part, I believe, five of 20. And actually, that 20 might get bumped up to 22 if we do the specials in order with everything. So maybe this is five of 22. Oh, my God. I'm already exhausted thinking about the rest of them. But <laughs> thankfully, I've called in reinforcements for this one. Indeed, you have. Get me over the hump for this <laughs> uh, very unique Dragon Ball movie, uh, The World's Strongest or uh, The Strongest Guy in the World. So what I did was went out and got The Strongest Guy in the World from CBR.com. Uh, AnimeHerald.com, TheMarySue.com, all of those places. My good friend, Aunt Grimulia. Aunt, how are you, man? Good. You're good, good, actually, quite well. I'm not sure if I'm the strongest man on any of those platforms. Maybe collectively, I'm the only commonality. So I'm hoping that's the case. Yeah, I think that be. gives you some kind of like right to claim strongest. Like, you're the strongest who happens to appear on all three of these things at the same time. <laughs> and a couple others as well, thankfully. No, no, it's good to be back on uh, the show here, talking about Dragon Ball, uh, especially uh, the world's strongest, which I think is, and this may be a controversial opinion, of all the Dragon Ball Z movies specifically, it's the, I think it's the best one. I would argue so, because it's, and my reason for that will become apparent as we continue with this. I feel that may be a controversial opinion, but uh, not counting the specials. I think um, History of Trunks and Bardock are better uh, than this. But of the movies themselves, I personally find this is my favorite of them. But, um, you know, I, I think we may disagree on this one, and I am excited to, to discuss it. So I won't say it's one of my favorite ones. What I will say, though, is that it is a fairly unique movie in Dragon Ball. Um, oh, yeah. In, in the last one that we did, The Dead Zone, it's technically a Dragon Ball Z movie, but it actually takes place like before Raditz ever shows up to Earth. So mm. the movie kind of feels like a Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, like half, you know, somewhere in the middle. It's like both of those kind of movies that same sort of energy carries into this movie for me as well. Uh, you know, simple things like Gohan still is kind of a useless little kid. Piccolo and Goku aren't actually friends. Krillin is actually piss scared of, Goku, uh, of Piccolo. Roshi's relevant in some such way. Uh, <laughs> like a lot of those early Dragon Ball vibes are, are very much there for me. So it feels like a unique movie in a lot of ways because of stuff like that. But at the same time, it also sets up a number of things that uh, kind of become like recurring uh, tropes within Dragon Ball movies that mm. uh, we will see for years to come. But like, I guess the tropes become a little bit more um, recycled as they go on to see like where mm. they kind of originally came from is interesting. And I think what might make it unique for me. Yeah. Uh, you mean you, one of those tropes being, you mean it makes no sense in the continuity whatsoever. <laughs> well yeah uh, that's true uh the first three dragon ball films that take place in that series are like their own original stories that like are offshoots or like retellings of original parts of the story of the manga or the anime dragon ball mm -hmm. z is just like yeah this is a story that you know kind of takes place roughly around this time in the canon but <laughs> like it doesn't of. really and 
you know, we might reference some things that happen in like the comic book or the story or, or the, the anime story. So, you know, just kind of go with it. Who cares? I think only the, the Bojack film is the only one of the Z films that makes sense before the modern era with, with Battle of the Gods. I feel the others, like they, they just don't quite fit perfectly. Not ignoring the history of Trunks and Bardock. Uh, there's like one component where you're like, this doesn't seem right. Like, why is Goku back when he should be, you know, off world after Namek? Why is uh, Piccolo alive when he should have been dead by now? You know, it's like, oh, or why is, you know, and even actually think, was interesting, they have like a clip of Piccolo dying at the hands yeah. of Nappa during uh, Gohan's second uh, acid trip sequence in the franchise. <laughs> yes. So we do get the, uh, the, the, the now second insert song of these early Dragon Ball Z movies of Gohan singing us a song about some seemingly random crap. The random crap this time is uh, Mr. Piccolo, but yes. Only they, this time without the aid of drugs. So I think he's having like a, like a, like a hallucinatory, hallucinogen flashback right there. Yeah, no magic drunken apples for Gohan this time around. He was just daydreaming like a normal kid does. But yeah, they exactly. reference uh, Piccolo taking the hit for Gohan versus Nappa in that fight. So you know the Saiyan stuff has already happened. You know that Goku's not a Super Saiyan. You know that Namek was supposed to happen already. Piccolo should be dead. Like a lot of, a lot few of questions. Things, it's a few things in this film that don't quite add up. But as a story on its own, it works quite well. It's just these components don't make sense when you compare it, when you try to place them into Dragon Ball lore. For sure. Um, and in terms of what we're going to do for the summary this week, because it's been a few weeks since I've done one of these and I didn't write out plot beat by plot beat on a bunch of legal pads. I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to borrow a summary. Yep. Doing it. No shame. Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, for real. Dragon Ball Z Wikipedia page. They're there for a reason. However, I am going to give us the freedom to stop and make comments whenever we need to throughout this uh several paragraph summary so considering the alcohol we've consumed before recording this we may have many comments to make along the way of this podcast i mean let's be real alcohol or not i definitely would still have comments to make about dragon ball like just been this way my whole life but no same same the alcohol might make it difficult to read so let's see Let's see if we can. Let's see if it impairs our ability to read words. Bet you. <laughs> this, this will be the real test of Cubs might. Bet you it does. All right. So this is uh, again the world's strongest, uh, or in Japan, the strongest guy in the world. Released March tenth, nineteen ninety, at the Toei Cartoon Festival. Okay. All right. Let's do this summary. Lots of words. Lots of words. The movie begins with Gohan and Oolong searching for the Dragon Balls that have all been gathered in the frozen Sumisumbri Mountains, a place where the ice never melts. Though he hasn't told Gohan, Oolong secretly plans on wishing for comfy underwear. You know, it's good to know that some things are consistent. Here's the thing, though. Like, never change. Oolong already got that wish granted, man. Doesn't he know that he can't get that wish granted again by Shenron? That's a major plot hole at the beginning of this movie. I wouldn't say plot hole. I would say it's more of him just pushing his luck. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he just doesn't know the rule, you know? That, that's fair. I mean, I, I liken it to like how in the movie Tusk, uh, the, the guy 
decides to make a walrus out of a human being because he wants to recreate his best friend who was a walrus. I use that as a point of comparison because it's just so strange that people have a reaction, have to second guess why I even brought it up in the first place. Like, why talk about Tusk beyond the fact it's a bad movie? I don't know. Never I'm watched, not sure what my point with never, this is. Even. Yeah, what? never watched Tusk. So you, You're not missing anything. <laughs> you're really I mean, not. I guess I'm just missing out on jokes like these and whenever Kevin Smith makes a reference to it in one of his podcasts that I listen to. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean Kevin Smith, I, I like Kevin Smith, but Tusk, man, I mm, couldn't. Didn't, hey, mm. Just because yeah. he's a great guy doesn't mean he can't make shitty movies. Oh, God. He, he's excellent at making bad movies. Yeah, just, hey, just like our best friend. Our best friend in common, Zack mm-hmm. Snyder, great guy. Yeah, he makes shitty movies. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would have a drink with Zack Snyder. Seems like a cool dude. Seems but, very um, nice. Yeah, but I, I can name on like one hand the films I've liked that he's directed. And most of it had to do with all the titties and Sucker Punch. I wouldn't say that, but um, I wouldn't put Sucker Punch on that one list. No, <laughs> terrible movie. Like, but like, that's the one where I'm like, hmm, I think I like that. Uh, anyway, before, uh, before Oolong and this, uh, child that he's taken captive of his friend Goku reached the dragon balls, uh, because they just like notice that they're Oolong's like, Hey, I stole the dragon radar from Bulma. And oddly, all the dragon balls are just gathering together by themselves. Like Oolong, I, I know that we just said that you're stupid because of the Shenron, not knowing that wish rule thing, but like you thought the dragon balls were gathering themselves. You stupid pigheaded idiot. Yeah. You would have thought they had more of a plan. I mean, they could have used Goku as like because they hey, listen, Goku. Someone's gathering Dragon Balls. Do you want to check out check that out? Like, but then Oolong, then Oolong runs the risk of having his wish taken away. He had to bring the stupid gullible little kid with him for you know a little bit of protection. He's already fought the Saiyans at this point, so he can throw hands if need be. But I will argue that no one in this movie has any idea how to make a good wish with Shenron. Like, all the wishes are terrible. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. When they bust him out the ice, I'm just like, "How are you gonna get out of there now?" Like, yeah, the ice There's is gone. So many, so many better options. Whatever, man. We're not here to comment on their on their wish abilities. Uh, before they reach them, Shenron is summoned by Doctor Cochin, who wishes for Doctor Wheelow. I'll probably go between Wheelow and Weirdo, just so you guys know. It's not me slurring words; it's me going between Japanese and English. So. Uh, for Dr. Wheelow and their laboratory to be thawed from the ice. Later, when Gohan and Oolong approach the laboratory, they are ambushed by several biomen, aka like nondescript looking cybermen, and are knocked out. But Piccolo, who was training in the area, shows up and saves them. However, he is then ambushed by three mysterious warriors, and the resulting attack causes the ground beneath them to give way, burying Gohan and Oolong. After regaining consciousness, they return home. After Gohan promises Oolong to keep that shit a secret. I will interject right here. Um, in regards to the movie, Dr. Wheelow's a very interesting antagonist. But Dr. Cochin is kind of interesting in his own right. Like His whole purpose seems to be the simp for Dr. Wheelow and make sure he's, he's, he's doing okay. But it's but one problem with the film I do have is how boring all the other henchmen are. Like yeah. Cochin's a pretty cool henchman, but the other guys, it's like the Dragon Ball films, especially at this point, had a problem with henchmen in that they were all kind of the same. The best exception, I think, with this in the early Dragon Ball was um, Cooler's 
squadron. And it's oh, only yeah. because of what's his name, Salsa. It's really only because of Salsa. But um with that stupid ass haircut. Oh yeah. And exactly in the dub, like the French sounding accent or whatever accent he had. Oh, like yeah. he's the only only one that stands out. But these guys might be the most boring of the movie henchmen because they're just all like I mean, they're they're boring by design. They're meant to be just these mutagen like, mo- like monsters who just fight for Willow. Yeah, like biomechanical warriors or whatever. I think I forget exactly how they refer to them. Maybe the summary will give it to us. But Goku pops through one of them at a certain point. You see that there's robot parts on the inside. Um, yeah, the, the three henchmen. I did write this down. I thought this was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know which one is which, really. But yeah, right. uh, <laughs> that's a sign. Yeah, right. Kishimi Misokatsun. I'm fucking butchering these, but and Ibi Furaya. So these are all food dishes from Toriyama's city of birth, the city of Nagoya. That's N-A-G-O-Y-A. Nagoya. Wait, um, a Dragon Ball villain named after food? I had right. no idea. This is such a shock. So strange, but I'm. I think tip. I think what's notable about these is is a. It gave me an excuse to you know see that that's where he's born, and b. They're like very regional specific dishes that unless you're from that area, you might not be familiar with them. Even if you are Japanese, kishimi is flat noodles. Uh, misakatsun is deep fried breaded pork, and ibi furaya. He's the pink one. That's the only one I'm sure of. Mm. Uh, ibi furaya is fried shrimp because. Fried shrimp would be pink, you know. I'm assuming. Although I'm not gonna lie, the idea of um, fried pork makes me think of katsudon in terms of Japanese food, which is delicious. And I found out that uh, there was a place by me that serves it, so I'm gonna have to get myself some of that soon. Just well, I'm glad to jog your is, memory on some delicious delicacies in your area. Yeah, yeah. This is not. This is not. This is nothing, nothing to do with the movie. I, I just I just want Japanese food. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, on Roshi's Island, Oolong is preparing a meal for Boma to make up for destroying the Dragon Radar when several biomen, uh, a.k.a. knockoff Cybermen, show up asking for Master Roshi. Refusing to go along with them, they attack him, but they are easily defeated. Dr. Cochin then appears, thinking that Roshi is the strongest in the world. When the biomen put Boma's life in danger, Roshi agrees to go along with them, witnessing the entire of it. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to cut you off there and say, this is one thing I really like about this film. Um, how up until this point, Goku has almost no role whatsoever in the story. He only comes into play really in the second half. I really do like how much of a role Roshi has in this because it's kind of the most important role he will occupy in the majority of Dragon Ball Z until like basically super. <laughs> I think it allows for some interesting character dynamics to not let Gohan, excuse me, Goku come into the story immediately, you know, right out of the shoot. Like having it focus a little bit more on Roshi and having the information for Dr. Cochin and uh, Dr. Wheelow be so outdated that they think that Roshi is the strongest man in the world still. It it kind of gives me vibes, and I'm sure this is going to be a recurring theme throughout our discussion today. It gives me vibes of like that time Dr. Giroux was like building cell. And like they didn't, or they, he was making, turning themselves into androids and stopped following them around when they went to Namek and had no idea about Super Saiyan and that ability or like Piccolo mm-hmm. and Kami fusing or any of that stuff. Like 
just super underprepared, out of date information. But it's cool this time around because it lets somebody else be like the central focus of attention. Roshi whoops a lot of ass. Uh, it's very fun to see. And then like Oolong and Gohan spending time together at the beginning of this film, like they're like uh, like little troublemaking friends together. It's it's an interesting mm-hmm. dynamic that I don't think I can ever say happens again in Dragon Ball. It's strange. Not really. And, and I will say this also that with Roshi that I, that I think is really cool. It really makes Dragon Ball feel like a lived-in world. Because we know that Roshi is powerful. He has a legacy, especially in Dragon Ball. If you started watching back from Dragon Ball, you would know he's like, it's, like, it's this big deal, essentially. A little underground at times, but he's still a big deal. The god of martial arts, man. That's not a title that you just get given, you know? No, exactly. He went to hold martial art, the world's strongest tournament with when Go- in, you know, Goku's first tournament, Roshi wins. And he, 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 it, it, we don't really see that side of him for most of Dragon Ball Z. We hear about Roshi's life during really the Piccolo saga, during the, I guess, what was it, the 22nd martial arts tournament, 21st martial arts tournament? 21st is Jackie Chan, 22nd is Tien, 23rd is Piccolo, I believe. Okay, so, so 22nd. We see some of that with in that arc too, a little, a little bit of Roshi's um, past, but we really see it during the Piccolo arc. We really don't see much of Roshi's impact beyond that after Dragon Ball. So this kind of offers like a viewpoint of how the world sees Roshi. It makes the world feel older. It makes it feel like there's more of a history and more of a legacy which is always, I think, really cool. Any fictional world that feels older and feels like there's more story you didn't see, even if it's implied, even if it's indicated, I always feel has more impact to me personally as a viewer, as an audience member, if that makes sense. Anytime you feel like there's a lot of depth going on in terms of events, in terms of narrative, that the world didn't just start the moment the show started. That makes sense that it's existing pre before the, these events. Yeah. We're seeing a segment of that history. I think what is so nice about when Dragon Ball does it too, is that especially for like, mm-hmm. I don't know, so much a super, like we're very like hyper-focused on a very small group of characters and like actions and things that happen with them that pretty much just their immediate circle of friends knows about and pretty much nobody else in the world to have somebody else, even if it's a villain from 50 years ago who just got like thought out of the ice from underground, even if it's that motherfucker being like, man, Master Roshi, the god of martial arts, I got to work him into my evil plot. It's like, yo, other people know about Master Roshi. I know about Master mm-hmm. Roshi. You're right. It mm-hmm. makes the world feel a heck of a lot larger than these just uh, hyper-focused, segmented, like we're only talking about Saiyans now. We're only talking about people who live in West City now. We're only talking about Gohan's high school class now. It's only people who go to Bulma's par- birthday party and hang out with the god of destruction who come at her now. Yeah, you know what? It's like so long as you are down with Bulma, you're down with everybody. Yeah, exactly. Just, just by practice. I mean, technically, Wheelo is down with Bulma in the sense that he dragged Bulma down into his underground ice lair. It's true. And Bulma was kind of down with them, knowing the history and all that. Like, strongest, smartest woman in the world, Bulma. She's very eager to brag about Goku being the strongest in the world, too. Like the moment that uh, yeah. things were not going in Roshi's favor. Hey, man, 
She's not a girl, but not yet a woman. You know what I'm saying? Like she is still working on grace under pressure and just can't help but pop off about how strong her friends are sometimes, you know? I mean, I mean that's true. I'll, I mean, to be fair, if I was friends with like a person who could blow up moons with their like fists. Yeah, I'd brag about that too. No, uh, yeah, heartbeat. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Roshi agrees to go along with them, them being the Bio Warriors and Dr. Cochin. Uh, witnessing the entire event, Oolong goes to Goku's house and tells him what happened. Goku then sets off on the flying Nimbus toward the Sumisumbri, Sumisumbri, I think, Sumisumbri Mountains Something to like save Roshi and Boma. Meanwhile, Cochin, on Willow's orders, tests Roshi against his bio warriors, Kishimi, Ibi Furaya, and Misukatsun. And despite putting up a decent fight while being outnumbered, he is ultimately defeated. Bulma then reveals to Wheelow and Cochin, 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 who cares, Kyle? Some, that, some. That, Goku, uh, that Goku is in fact the world's strongest. And Cochin reveals their plan to have Wheelow's brilliant scientific mind take over the body of the strongest in the world, where he will then be able to reign over the world as revenge for all of the humans who refuse to acknowledge his genius and cast him aside so this uh, is some freaking universal frankenstein bullshit and i love it <laughs> so in the middle of all this exposition that they just dump out to boma for no reason which you know in and of itself will be a recurring thing in these movies uh they like say at a certain point they're like hey did you hear on the news a few days ago there was this lush valley that just magically turned into a desert that was us that's right we got that kind of fucking shit going on Plus this, this brain in a robot body. Plus your strong ass friend's going to come save you. And we're going to steal his body. We're going to be unstoppable soon. And then you never hear about how they plan to like turn shit into desert anymore. I, I don't know. Reload doesn't really have much of a plan beyond put brain inside other person's body and just be awesome. Like I'm going to keep doing what I was doing before. Just also put a machine yeah. gun in Cochin's hands. So that way, in case he gets into a tough spot, he can shoot people with his machine gun hand. Which is interesting. I, I, I always find it funny how like guns in Dragon Ball are like always, you know, because obviously they can catch bullets with their hand and toss them back at the farmer who shot them. Not bullets aren't particularly powerful. And yet for some, whatever reason, Cochin must have some great ammunition or great, you know, firepower, because his bullets are actually threatening to Goku and Gohan, which indicates that human technology, like, it, it, we know this because of the androids and Cell later on, obviously, but it seems to me that we see a very demonstrable example that human technology can hurt a martial artist, can hurt um, the Saiyans. It's just a matter of, how brilliant the mind behind it, I suppose. I always thought that was very interesting, interesting because it's an example of a villain who was created and developed, but in, in terms of Wheelow and his entourage, there isn't a natural power to Wheelow. Everything he has is entirely due to his own brilliance. And we see shades of that in the Cell arc, obviously, but again, really, whenever the androids come up, it's Jiro doing something. So we kind of assume it's a, it's a skill unique to Giroux. But Wheelow kind of did that too with less technology because he did it with technology that was like at least 50 years old. That yeah, makes you wonder, you know. It's been buried under the ice for all this time, yeah. 
Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have much, uh, much option to update his tech, you know, based on new advancements. Otherwise, Willow probably would be more threatening than, than uh, Giroux. What was Giroux making when, like, was like even at that point five or seven years earlier? Like, he was making Android 8, you know? Yeah, he was eight or and like starting the yeah. technology to like compile all the information with the little bees and shit walking, flying around, surveillance and stuff. Like, yeah, if Willow made technology that dwarfed Aider, you know, 50 years prior, imagine what he could have done if he had like a few years of planning. Like he would have been able to like freaking out magic Frieza with some of the tech he would have made probably. Well, I think that's why they say, uh, you know, it's almost as if the heavens could not stand the, or they were jealous with the thought of Dr. Willow's brilliance. Like, yes, he flew too close to the sun. And then and the fucking, wax in his wings melted. And he fell <laughs> down into a ice valley and got frozen over for 50 goddamn years. Yeah. You know, didn't have much time to update his knowledge. Makes you kind of wonder if his brain was functional all that time. What was he doing with like just kind of sitting in a tube, just kind of was waiting. Just waiting. So had some really good Netflix down there. Cause I'm telling you right now, I would have been. I think he was trying to solve the problem of the fact that his body died and that he had to somehow keep his brain alive. That that probably would have, you know, he found immortality in a sense. Well, I mean, until he didn't, but you know, oh, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> so going against his mother's wishes, Gohan secretly leaves his house and follows his father. After Goku arrives at Wheelos Fortress, he is attacked by the fortress built-in traps and Misakatsu, which I think is the big fat yellow one now, if I'm remembering the, the sequence of events properly. But I do uh, believe you might be right there. He destroys all the traps, which are like these spinning ball things with spikes going bananas, uh, with rapid energy blasts, and easily defeats Misakatsu with the Kaioken by doing like a King Piccolo kind of thing, like just busting through his thorax, but, you know, with the power of Kaioken, so... You're going to laugh at my point of comparison with what I thought of when I was seeing the traps. Remember um, Nightmare Before Christmas? Okay. How the entire final fight is just Jack Skellington dodging like spinning wheels of death. Yeah. And just stupid toy traps. That's what those made you think of. That's what I thought. That was the exact thing I thought of. I I, I know I could have thought like a saw or something like that, but no, no. Tim Burton, Henry Selleck, stop motion animation. That was my point of comparison. I think you might have like a lawsuit in your future against Tim Burton for all the emotional anguish he's caused you. No, I, I, I like Tim Burton films in general. I mean, I have issues with Tim Burton's modern output of films, but you know, going with going by childhood nostalgia there, I'll go with that. You know what movie I think about watching like once a year, but never do? What? Big Fish. Yeah, honestly, same. That's a movie that like, I feel like when I first saw it, I loved it, but I never go back to it. That movie fucked me up, man. And I don't yeah. even know why fully. I saw it in the theater and just like sobbed the whole time. It's emotional. Like it, it deal, you're dealing with like the loss of like a father figure and all these, and the stuff, all the tall tales. And you think, oh, this is just nonsense. And you realize, no, it was an inkling of truth to them. No, that, that's a, that's a movie I like a lot. I just haven't seen it a lot. If that makes sense. All right. Well, I guess we can hold off on the lawsuit against the class action lawsuit against Tim Burton then. Yes. For, for my childhood. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mainly just because of big fish making us cry though. I don't yeah. want you to hold that power against me, Tim. No. Or which is a hands for that matter. Yeah. That one's a good one. Beetlejuice is cool. Beetlejuice is pretty fun. 
Oh, when the Nightmare Before Christmas, duh. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> this is Halloween. This is Halloween. Goku is then attacked by Kishibi and Ibi Furaya and ends up entombed in ice. Just before uh, the deciding blow is thrown, Gohan, along with Krillin, show up to save the day. And Gohan's wearing a cape and shit, which is cool. The only time we see him with like a Piccolo cape on up until the Cell games. So, yeah, which is really fun. I do have to say, though, like I was just writing an article recently that might be up by the time it might be up right now. I'm not even sure. Talking about Gohan's various different outfits throughout Dragon Ball Z. Uh, I will say that whenever Gohan wears like the Piccolo like cape aesthetic, it, it, it's just really cool. because It just shows visually how much he how much he took after his mentor. I mean, he has a whole song number about loving Piccolo. In so, this movie. That's actually exactly what I was about to go to because at the beginning of this paragraph, they say, going against his mother's wishes, Kohan secretly leaves his house and follows his father. What this whack ass Wikipedia summary bullshit fails to say is that there's an entire goddamn insert song about it called I Love Mr. Piccolo, sang by Gohan. And right now, like we did with the Dead Zone and his dumb drunk Apple song, I'm gonna read you the lyrics to this I Love Mr. Piccolo song. Are you ready? I am eager to hear your uh, rendition of this uh, this number. Oh, oh, oh. It's so terrible. There are scary-faced iguana dump trucks and quick-footed squirrel supercars. This who gets chased by like the freaking school equipment, like the little protractor and the and the calculator and everything. He's like, I, I would rather be doing anything else besides studying my schoolwork right now. So much to the point that I'm willing to imagine this protractor trying to uh, disembowel me and chase me around my room. Be fair, that's a mood that I fully agree with. So, Jesus, what should I do? I let out a shout. Casting my notebook and pencils aside. On Saturn's rings, hey, there's a roller coaster. Now, I'm going to fight this uh, roller coaster thing. I'm pretty sure it's actually like a jet car. I, I believe it's jet, because then he says jet car. Like, I remember that phonetically speaking. Whatever. A voice louder than my mom's. Can such a thing exist? Hey, 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 hey. Before I realize it, even I step, step, and jump. Off, off, off goes Piccolo. It's as exciting as waiting for snack time. Off, off, off goes Piccolo. Hey, hey, he's so strong. Mr. Piccolo. L-O-O-O-O-V-E. All right, that's just the first half. You guys ready for the second half? <laughs> Isn't like more love, Mister Piccolo, after that? Uh, no, I mean I'll I'll condense best I can, but there's definitely at least another solid like two verses. Uh, oh 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 oh! What a what a super surprise! It's really cold. The coolest dry ice. It's really hot. The stove warmed rice. Yo, that shit rhymes in English too. Crap. Don't you understand? I'd run away. 
But if my studies lag, I'll get scolded. Even the Earth's eyeballs are, yay, roller skating. What is he? Is he like Kami-sama? What kind of person is he? Ah, this time my heart skips, skips, and jumps. Off, off goes Piccolo. He tells me all about of his, he tells me about all of his awesome dreams. The song rules. Off, off. This is great. Goes Piccolo. Hey, hey, I want to know. I want to know what they are. I love Mr. Piccolo. Mr. Piccolo. I really, really, Mr. Piccolo. I really, really, I love Mr. Piccolo. <sighs> is this way? Is this when he imagines Piccolo getting killed by Nappa, though? Because I remember that, like, that's the just scene. being like, yeah, yeah, that was like a weird little jar. It's all cute and fluffy, and all of a sudden, like, freaking like insert of like him dying. I'm like, well, that was a it's like a little like, shot of trauma there. It's like a little cartoon cutout, go on a little cartoon cutout Piccolo, like walking around the silhouette of the world and shit, marching in order, all cute and shit. Then it's like, remember that time he died for you? It's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, bro. I feel like I was just fucking flipping through a catechism book. Where the fuck did we leave off? That's right. This is when Gohan and Krillinger showed up to save the day for him in the ice. Remember? They, too, are soon defeated and having no choice. Goku once again uses the Kaioken technique to break the ice and defeat the remaining bio warriors. The three then arrive at Wilo's lab where Bulma is being held, asking where Roshi is. Dr. Kachin. Kachin, Kachin, fuck, dude, explains that he's preparing him to become another of their bio-warriors. Cool. Roshi's going to get an upgrade, man. That's um, one thing I wondered, too, when watching this. Like, are the other bio-warriors just other people that they kidnapped and just transformed, like Piccolo? Like, like, Ro- like Roshi did what they wanted to do with Roshi and what they ultimately do with Piccolo? Because the implications of that are pretty horrifying, <laughs> you know? Where, like, he's just, like, kidnapping people and, like, turning them into living weapons for them. Like, say what you will, but like Android 18 and 17 being like cybernized humans. At least they had free will. This is pretty... Because uh, that would just imply Goku just killed like some relatively innocent warriors who were just mind-controlled by Wheelow to do that. I do mean, bidding. I guess, man, but like, think about it again. Like, Dr. Wheelow did this. Dr. Giro came along a few decades later and did that. Dr. Giro's the dumbass who gave them free will. Look what that got him. Again, Wheelow is such a better scientist than Giro. Like, it's just like everything Jer- Wheelow did is like better than Giro and way better than freaking was his name, Mew from GT. Dr. Mew. Yeah. Dr. Mew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Willow, if like he had the same access, the same technology, could have like freaking outperformed both those guys in like seconds. Like his plan wasn't to kill Goku, his plan was to freaking put his brain inside Goku. And then Dr. Mew and Dr. Jiro, years later in the depths of hell, get together for the Super 17 fucking arc. And they probably still couldn't even hold a candle to Dr. Weirdo. So and much they to the didn't point. Ask him. Hey, I haven't been watching Super Dragon Ball Heroes. That's obviously a big old waste of everyone's time, but I heard it's getting fun again. I heard they mm-hmm. brought back Dr. Wheelow recently. Hey, what? Yeah. <laughs> Keep me up with, with Super with Heroes. What? Super Dragon Ball Heroes. 
freaking Wheelow would fucking compete with with with, with super with super sane super god super sane blues yeah. easily. Like he would be able to. He'd be like, I might just be a brain in a container and shit, but like my container's got arms and legs, and like you just think I'm a brain and I'm oh never mind, just stole your body because I'm shifty ass scientist. Got you. Also, I like to point out just how interesting Kachin is as a as a, as a henchman. I, I, I we haven't really talked about that really. We mentioned how like the other henchmen are boring, but Kachin's really kind of kind of compelling antagonist in his own right. Beyond the fact that he just simps for like Willow. I mean, he's, he he is like the de facto Doctor Willow until Doctor. It's you get the revelation that Willow's the brain. You know, you're like, oh my god, this guy's not the real evil guy. It's his fucking brain. Yeah, and a giant walking tank. So I I feel like I kind of project the idea that he's a good villain because you know he doesn't achieve like a henchman assistant status until the brain reveal happens. You know. Yeah, like you don't think of him as like a henchman. He's like kind of like the heavy for most of the fight. Like he he kind of is the the guy who's running the show. He's the one who kidnaps like lures Roshi in by kidnapping Bulma. He's the one who espouses all the exposition. Willow is just kind of chilling in his brain tank, just you know, making necessary commentary when needed. But otherwise, he's he's just he's just having a fun time in his brain tank, just uh, observing. He's like, hey, uh, coaching. That one looks good. Give me that. I want to be that guy. Give me that guy. Yeah, that, you know, you know, he is essentially the CEO and coaching is like the very successful middle management guy. Not a bad analogy. Cause, cause Wheeler knows to delegate the effort <laughs> to someone else. Yeah. He knows that's not the best use of his time. He's like, maybe once I get this new Goku body. Then I can do some more shit for myself, but I'm just a brain, man. I'm just a brain. I'm just gonna delegate my responsibilities for now, and you know, when the time comes, I'll, I'll, I'll get out of my chair. My value to this organization, Doctor Cochin, is my motherfucking brain. Why? Because I am only a goddamn brain. Now go get me Goku's body, so that way I can get in his body and whoop your ass for asking stupid questions, Doctor Cochin. To be fair, though, Cochin probably has some serious problems. With not, you know. You can figure out what the Dragon Balls are, but you can't figure out that Roshi isn't the strongest in the world anymore. I guess he just didn't read newspapers, but he really knew how to build a dragon radar. I feel like he really misapplied his uh, brilliance there. He was too busy trying to uh, bust his homie out from ice jail. Yeah, listen, hey. when, when you have a one-track mind, uh, everything else just kind of falls to the wayside, like 50 years of advancements in um, everything. Well, despite all these advancements, I didn't see any advancements to Master Roshi in terms of becoming a bio warrior. Uh, which nope. I remember seeing that shit when I was a kid and being like, oh, Master Roshi's going to get a power up. That'd be dope. Like Cyborg Master Roshi, Cyborg Old Man Master Roshi. That'd be so cool. I would rather have watched you know, Buff Roshi fight Goku than watch Piccolo fight Goku again. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was like, we did that twice. In Dragon Ball. <laughs> well, I mean, it's another recurring movie trope. They have a same. Well, actually, last uh, in the dead zone, he doesn't get mind controlled, but the dead zone, like they have that calm before the storm moment where they think that Garlic Jr. is defeated and Piccolo looks at Goku. He's like, You're next, bitch. And then they start fighting each other, like in the middle of it. And then they realize that Garlic Jr. is not dead. So, you know, throw it in for one more movie, except give him some weird, like, I don't know, yellow thing on his head mm. to make him mind controlled or whatever. Sure. And then next movie, they have Gohan go like Azaru and just fight everyone anyway. So it all works out. 
It's the same trick. It's just a different character. Got to turn one of your own against the party to make it an interesting battle with some stakes because you don't want to kill your friend. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to do that. That'd be bad. No, nah, it's true, man. I got some friends that I'd be like, I don't want to kill you, but I'll whoop your ass a little bit. Yeah. I will kick your ass, but it'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> we we'll talk it. about it. Um, let's see. Gohan and Krillin show up. Soon defeated and have no choice, Goku uses the Kaioken to break free of the ice and then defeat the remaining bio warriors. Okay, cool. We said that. Asking uh, where Roshi is, Kachin explains that he's preparing him to become another of their bio warriors. They summon the newly brainwashed Piccolo that we just talked some shit about who was captured earlier and orders him to defeat Son Goku so they can begin the process of swapping his mind for Wheelos. Goku and Piccolo then fight each other. Gohan's anger over seeing his two dads fight causes him to unleash a wave of energy, which causes the mind-controlling device on Piccolo to break. Of course. I will say that fatherly love is pretty good. It's a pretty good force to break mind control. I, I feel like this is one of the one, one of the few ones. One of the, I mean, all the movies obviously have like Piccolo and Gohan like having their affectionate moment, but I do like how this is like very solidified early on the series that Gohan kind of trusts Piccolo more than Goku at some point, in some ways. All right. So I, I don't know, man, this movie actually, I think kind of kicks back that trend a little bit because to an extent. Yeah. Cause Gohan sees mind control Piccolo. That's what this summary tells us. Right. And like, yeah, totally valid. It upsets him, but I think he's even more upset by the fact that his dad just, you know, now has to fight his other, uh, you know, I hate the joke, but his other dad for the purposes of this joke, it's it's my yeah. it's my dad and my stepdad fucking fighting each other. And I'm the poor five year old caught in the middle, feeling helpless, wanting them to cut it out. But my stepdad just has a fucking hate on for my real dad right now because of this little mind control device. Some evil ass doctor scientist put on the back of his fucking head. I don't know what else to do except scream and hope that that shit will break the mind control, which thankfully, in this case, it worked out to, to go that way, you know. This sounds like a very, like, really strange remake of Kramer versus Kramer. Kind of. I think, except with Dragon Ball powers. Yeah, basically, unless Dustin Hoffman. So really, there's just no downside to this. This movie gets better the more we talk about it. Exactly, right? <laughs> See what I mean? This is a great movie. <laughs> uh, Dr. Cochin then tries to shoot Krillin and Bulma with his machine gun, machine gun arm, but is disarmed. Ha ha takes off his machine gun arm by Master Roshi, who uh, is not being turned into a bio-warrior. Apparently, he escaped, and uh, he's here to help save the day. Again, Master Roshi is just amazing in this movie. This is some of the best Roshi action you get for 30 years. God of martial arts? Mitano Roshi-sama. Yeah, exactly. It's great. <laughs> Wheeler then breaks out the wall, revealing his brain to be inside a huge robot. And Dr. Cochin accidentally dies in the resulting reveal. Because <laughs> that's how little Dr. Weirdo thought about that dude. I mean, I, I do like how he has like a like a Disney villain death where he just falls off a like a freaking like cliff, essentially. And, and I love how like back when this was on Toonami, this is like a bit of a personal story. Um, they used to show the clip of Coaching falling off a cliff to his death as part of the promotional material for the movie. Hell yeah. And I was like, well, they know the good bits. Any villain who dies by falling off a cliff clearly is. And, he, and then at one point, he actually has his skin fry off, basically, and reveals his whole body is like metal. And that's kind of, you know, makes opens up the door for, to some strange questions there that never get answered. 
You know, talking about the tsunami thing, like a lot of people were like, we'll see little bits of this movie and be like, that looks familiar. I must have seen this before. Part of it would be like the Krillin running from the machine gun arm bullets. Uh, mm-hmm. Roshi's fight with uh, the bio warriors. I think the second one that he has, like all of those little clips. I think we talked about it during the dead zone one as well. When garlic is, uh, excuse me, when Goku is fighting the spice boys, a bunch of those battles were cut into the introduction for rock the dragon on the tsunami block. So mm-hmm. I, I see little clips of that and I'm just like, Holy shit, dude. Yeah, that's right, man. I want to listen to rock the dragon right now. Me being a sub kid, the fact that rock the dragon gets me that rock hard is pretty notable. But, uh, the other thing that is noticeable, uh, notice, notable about this movie to me in terms of tsunami is they had the movie cut that you could buy on VHS back in the day or whatever. But when they showed this on television, sometimes they would cut it up. They would do this with the first three movies. I believe that they did this with the Tree of Might as well. They definitely did it with Garlic. They definitely did it with this movie. I believe they did it for Tree of Might as well. But they cut them up into like three individual-ish episodes to like, uh, you know, kind of throw on long tsunami uh, weekend blocks. Yeah, they would show this. I feel like they showed this more than once. Like, I have memories of seeing it more than once, but I might not be... Again, memory is weird where you like half remember things and you combine memories, but they would show clips of this all the time and all their promotional material. Probably because it was just some of the best animation in Dragon Ball. The movie had some really solid fight animation. Like there's so many flips, there's so much dynamic lighting, there's so much uh, fluidity to the action. And I will say this also about uh, World Strongest, if I recall correctly, this is one of the few promotions on Toonami that showed Japanese. They showed the Jap- they had the Japanese audio, if I recall correctly, when promoting this movie. Hmm. So it's funny you say Japanese audio because the movies like the act- voice audio, not like the musical audio. Not the musical audio. Okay. So I don't remember them showing the Japanese version of it back then, but I do remember watching them not being aware of like the difference between, you know, this, I knew that this was a movie. All right. I knew that, Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize uh, the difference in terms of like the background scoring, but I just knew that watching these, I was like, I don't know why I really like these episodes. And then like, you know, flash forward fucking 25 years later, I'm fully aware that the background music wasn't Bruce Falcon or bullshit. It was uh, the Kikuchi scores from back then. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that just kind of contributes better to the overall uh aesthetic to to dragon ball better than you know ambient sci-fi keyboard music that does not stop not even for one goddamn second um i just always thought it was interesting to me that a they chose to give some of these early movies that treatment of dividing them up into three different things but still like like they would show some shit from the frieza saga and then roll into these or vice versa or whatever so like you'd get the contrast of like this Kikuchi stuff with like the, the ocean group dub from 98 and the pioneer release versus what the, um, you know, the Falconer score sounded like with, uh, you know, later Frieza stuff that they did in house in Dallas at Funimation. I have a soft up the Falconer score, all these parts of it. I feel the components that work well and other points that you like, Okay, we have to have some silence here. Come on, we don't need we don't need 
the ambient noise going on right now, but I do feel like some of the scores, I think I have a soft spot for it's one song. It's one score that you're thinking of. And it goes like, it's the, the the precursor, the, the preluding line to it is tell me, does a machine like yourself experience fear? And then it goes, there's a couple others actually. There's a couple. I think the, his cell music's really good too. I think his theme for cell is really cool. And it's, it's like a few. Um, and, and I think it's more just like light motifs that he uses that I think are really cool. But I think they also carry on too long, if that makes sense. Like they just keep going and going and going when they, they, they should have their like brief 30 to 40 second moment of, of, of sound and then just go back to quiet for the sake of the intensity of the scene. Yeah. But like, they rob the scene of their, of, of like the music itself is pretty cool. Like it's, I could see myself, you know, doing, you know, work with this playing in the background, feeling like a, like a badass. The problem is when the scene itself is robbed of its emotional intensity. Cause you're listening to the music more than watching the scene. That's when I think a score is doing it, doing a bad job. Not that the score itself is bad, but that the score is poorly implemented. And I think that's more my issue with the Bruce Falconers. If I can pinpoint one issue with it, I think that's my bigger issue. It was a conscious decision to never let there be background silence, like to never let the dialogue breathe, to always have the music going on. And it was, I, I don't know mm -hmm. the exact thought process, but it, it basically equates to like, they thought kids wouldn't be able to, like they thought kids would get distracted and be like, look away from the television. Like they weren't watching Dragon mm -hmm. Ball Z for fuck's sake. And like the Falconer score music was going to keep them hooked into it. And Hey, you know what? Who the fuck am I, dude? I guess it has. People are still talking about this mediocre, in my opinion, score 20, 25 years later. But mm -hmm. one thing I did learn today, looking into this movie a little bit is 2006 Funimation gets the dub uh, licensing rights back from Pioneer and they redub this movie and um, the Dead Zone and the Tree of Might. And instead of just doing the thing that they should be doing all the time and you'd hope they would have been doing all the time by this point and keeping the original score, they decide that they're going to hire uh, not Falconer, but a, a replacement score composer named Nathan johnson to do a sound alike score to uh replace the kakuchi score for the american audiences who had that falconer kind of vibe in mind i haven't heard the score personally but i just think it's very um interesting that they kind of bent over backwards for that back in 2006 or whatever mm. i have heard this score. it's very unremarkable it's strange. Whenever I think of like old Dragon Ball dub music, I think for the movies anyway, I think of Disturbed and Drowning Pool because they used to like put all, which, you know, granted, if you have to replace the soundtrack for something, you might as well. The Lord like Slug 80s. movie had uh, the sickness, didn't it? Or something like some big Disturbed song. It had, um, it, I'm not sure if it had down with the sickness, but it definitely had, um, oh, what's its name? I don't know. It's one of the iconic ones from that era. It had a it had a Deftone song as well, I believe. Like I a few Deftones. I own that Funimation the... dub on VHS, that Lord Slug shit. That one's coming up soon. I think yeah, uh, that soundtrack alone is. I don't know who has that one. It might be Reese. Not sure. We'll see though. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a good fucking. It's a. There is so many good um, 
I'm actually cheating right now and looking up. No, look it song. up, man. Let me know because that was going to bother me. It's going to bother me if we Stupify. don't figure it out. There we go. Stupefy. 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 Look at my first and my soul. I'm a good Stupefy. That's the one right there. Um, as for the Deftone song, it was the one. It was from their original album, too. Like, um, uh, I never was huge. in House of Flies. There we go. House of Flies. There we go. I was like, I was drawing a blank on the specific name. It's one of those things that's going to bug me if I don't know for sure. So I had to look it up. Just to make sure I wasn't going crazy. Glad we got there. Uh, in terms of original Japanese music, as I've talked about in some of these movies, uh, these movie reviews, uh, Kikuchi would do big sets of music for Dragon Ball all at the same time. Uh, this was what was known as set 11. Uh, and usually they were started in new... Uh, movies by this point in time once the movie started coming out that's really where he started to implement new, new pieces of music uh, the theme for Dr. Wheelow is uh, recycled in the show for Frieza's theme so if that music, piece of music sounds familiar it's because you've probably seen uh, Frieza you know pop in and whoop some ass with it a, a couple of hundred times in your life that makes a lot of sense when I think about it I knew it sounded familiar watching it again I was like what is this I know this that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to hold off on this little last piece of music trivia um, before we wrap up this uh, this synopsis here. Uh, Willow then breaks out of the wall, revealing his brain. It's a big fucking robot, dude. Piccolo attacks Dr. Willow, only to be brushed aside like a beige. As Willow jumps into the air, Goku, Krillin, and Roshi fire the master student, Kamehameha, which does absolutely jack shit nothing to Willow, who then proceeds to take out both Roshi and Krillin. <laughs> Gohan attempts to attack Wheelow with the power pole. Notable because it's literally like the only time Gohan uses the power pole pretty much ever. Uh, but it's knocked out before he can. Goku then uses the power pole to trip Wheelow's robot body. And Piccolo launches a wave of energy blasts at Wheelow, but to no avail. With no other choice, Goku uses the Kaioken times three. Starts to cause damage to Wheelow. Attempting to finish him off with the Kaioken Kamehameha. However, Wheelow's own blast is able to overwhelm it, which forces Goku to increase that shit to four times four and blast Wheelow straight the fuck up into space. So this would put Wheelow on par with Vegeta. Yeah, so like in terms of the timeline here, he's got the Kami uh, patch on the front and the Kaio patch on the back. So it's post-Vegeta, pre-Namek. I guess Wheelow would be like, uh, you know, like Saiyan Saga, Vegeta, Nappa level shit. Well, Vegeta level shit, I guess. So you give Willow 50 years of time to develop his tech. He could easily take on Frieza, is what we're saying. Hopefully Goku blasted that motherfucker further not, far, far enough into space so that way he doesn't have that option. Also, I got to say one more thing also that I think is interesting. I do love how Willow takes on the whole team of people at once. I feel like Dragon Ball at times, one issue is that everyone fights one-on-one, everyone fights one-on-one, but a lot of the fights are one-on-one when like seven people are there. If you all gang up on them and just beat the snot out of them, you're good to go. But Wheelow's like, nah, man, I was all, it doesn't matter how just come all at me at once. I'll take you all down. I was watching the Piccolo versus 17 fight last week. And there's a moment where, uh, you know, all three androids find them. And Piccolo's like, all right, let's go somewhere deserted to go fight. And he tells, looks at Gohan and Krillin, and he's like, you guys fucking stay here because you got to know that you just be getting in the way anyway. Mm-hmm. And in my brain, I'm like, yeah, but 
I don't know. Isn't it better to bring more people with you? And I don't know. I guess like that kind of starts that trend of like, uh, you know, there's like no big group fights. There's no team up stuff unless it's like this androids teaming up against trunks. Like it's, it becomes rare and rare throughout the series until you see more stuff in super where Goku and Vegeta work together very proactively a lot of the time. Yeah. Which I think is really cool. I do also think I like how during the 18 fight with Vegeta, Everyone just tries ganging up on 18, but they all get their asses kicked for like in quick succession just to show the sheer gap in power level between all of them. And I like how during the boost fight, like the kid boo fight, Vegeta, you know, fat boo and kind of Mr. Satan hmm. gang up on kid boo to, to buy time for the spear pump. I say kind of because like this consists mostly of Mr. Satan just throwing a rock at a kid boo and then just like. Well, I mean, Vegeta fights him for that dodge. full minute, you know? Vegeta gets his ass whipped for a full minute. Oh, it's great. It's one of the best, like, just beatdowns in the whole series. It's just like, he, it's clear, even though he gets his ass kicked, he still wins. He gets exactly what he needs. I mean, going when he volunteers to do it, he's like, I'm probably about to die, but fuck it. That's an all-time Vegeta moment for me, or an underrated Vegeta moment. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get you a minute. Well, I mean, just please tell me that's all you need. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, that's right. Goku just blasted Wheelow's ass right up into outer space, or mm-hmm. did he? However, Wheelow, now that he's been blasted up into space, decides to destroy the earth. Okay, and so Goku starts to collect energy from around the world to form the spirit bomb. First time of, of many times, first time of, of three movies, this will be the ending uh this is one of three uh, i thought it works best with wheelow though because wheelow's whole thing is his technology he's a single man's ambition the idea the brilliance of one mind that creates all this meanwhile the solution goku has is a collective pooling of energy it's almost like a mystical way of fighting this guy it's like a real dragon ball has like this weird sci-fi fantasy thing goes that the whole thing toriyama kind of loosely combines elements of fantasy and elements of sci-fi and it works it's cbc only- brings in the sci-fi heavy i'd say up until then it's like traditional like you know martial arts stuff with some magic and mysticism and shit like that but once exactly. dragon ball z happens he's like yo outer space goku's an alien sci-fi all day. exactly it's great i feel like this movie really kind of blends those flavor of dragon ball with the flavor of dragon ball z to come the more tech heavy stuff versus the more mystical world's strongest martial artist using his own inner spiritual strength combined the power of the world you have the world's strongest versus the world by the end of the story and i think it's a cool way of wrapping up the narrative because you do have everyone collectively fighting the quote-unquote world's strongest at the end of the movie and and like Indian. I said uh, toward the beginning of the conversation, like these, this movie and the last movie are kind of like in between steps from the two series, Dragon Ball to Dragon mm-hmm. Ball Z. This one, I'd say, leans heavier into sci-fi stuff than the Dead Zone did. The Dead Zone is still very much in like that magic mysticism kind of realm, demons and shit like that, the gods of the world. This one is very technological uh, in its villains, you know, origin story. The next one is with Turles. It's like mm-hmm. by that point, Goku's a Saiyan from Earth. Like this movie, you don't hear the word Saiyajin one time. Like by the next movie, it's it's like a full blown Dragon Ball Z movie with an evil Goku. You know, the first of many evil Goku's to come in all. Exactly, and and in those cases, 
the spirit bomb just becomes another technique he uses to win. Whereas in this, it almost feels thematic. It almost feels like there is a deeper meaning. Either if you look at it from, from the lens of Goku using a technique that kind of pulls the world against this one scientific mind, you know, nature versus the science of man. Or you look at it as Goku using a technique he learned in Dragon Ball Z to defeat an opponent who is so rooted in the old world, in the Dragon Ball world. It, it, depending on how you look at it, it's either a nature versus man scenario with Goku as nature, or it's a passing of the torch thematically. And I think yeah. that's a kind of cool thing about this movie. It doesn't have its feet entirely rooted in one series. It feels like one of the few points in the series where you get Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball in one really fun package. And I think that's one of the things I really love about this movie. Just captured in one image, you know, essentially. That and also the fact that Goku takes time to charge the spirit bomb and doesn't just materialize in five seconds like with freaking fluid slug. <laughs> yeah, I like uh, I like movie spirit bomb versus the spirit bomb that he uses against Frieza. Like, I realize yeah. that he uses a spirit bomb against Vegeta of similar size, but like when I think of the Genki Dama, I think of Goku holding up both arms and having a dynamic, dynamic, ginormous. I can't think of proper words, actual words right now. But you know, I what think of words? the big gigantic super spirit bomb. I believe is is what it would be called. Mm. Uh, I like movie size spirit bomb. It's nice. It uh, fits in well at the end of a story. And like you said, it's uh, an example of a man who fights to protect the earth and uses the collective power of said earth to defeat an evil brain roboted man who wants to just destroy the earth and make everyone his uh, slaves and stuff. Not cool, Dr. Willow. That's why you failed, idiot. And if you like this way of him being an opponent, don't worry. We have multiple films where he does the same thing. Well, all right. So there's a couple there's a couple of lines uh, left to this this plot synopsis, right? But I, I do want to hit there's, there's multiple films where the same thing happens, but like also Dr. Willow kind of happens again. Um, let's see. However, Willow decides to destroy the Earth. And so Goku starts to collect energy from around the world to form the spirit bomb. However, he is attacked from above before he can launch it. Angry, Gohan, along with Piccolo and Krillin, head upwards towards Willow to attempt to stop him to little success, and he attacks the Earth with his planet geyser energy wave. Goku, having collected himself, launches the spirit bomb at Willow, destroying both Willow's energy wave and Willow himself. So... I guess for the dead zone, we talked about how one thing I like about the dead zone is the fact that later on in the series, they go back to garlic junior for some filler purposes, post Namek free androids. Uh, with this movie, one thing that I kind of like about it as an adult is I'm like, I, I see the plot and I see when it came out, you know, March of 1990, this was a little bit before um, the, the Android saga started. This was still, I think right in the throes of Frieza. Uh, like Frieza hadn't been defeated yet. I don't think Super Saiyan had happened yet. I, I should have double checked that. This is my bad, but I, this is kind of what I think about when I see this date. It's like, did Toriyama see this movie that he wasn't really involved in, you know, outside of it being a Dragon Ball Z movie? He doesn't make up the story or anything. Did he see this and be like, yo, evil robot doctor? 
That's some cool shit, man. I like that idea. I'm going to take that, repurpose it a little bit and put it into the story around the same time. He probably also saw like Terminator two for the first time in a minute. And he was like, dude, that John Connor guy, that trunks guy, if I can just take these two ideas and somehow put them together through the beginning of the Android saga. And then the other thing that kind of reminds me of the Android saga from this movie, and it's not necessarily on purpose is like, the Android saga has so many villains that move in and out throughout it, like 19 and 20 start and 17, 18, 16, then imperfect cell, uh, then, you know, regular cell, imperfect cell, perfect cell. Right. And like, if you, this isn't anything that I'm an expert on, but like I've heard people who are knowledgeable of how Dragon Ball was written and edited back in the day, Toriyama's editor at the time was like, dude, these are the villains, this old man with a long ass mustache and this fat fucking pale skin robot bitch and Android 19. Like you need to get some cooler ass villains in this. What's your problem? And then the, the kids come in and 16 comes in and it, like the cell thing happens and it, you know, kind of all marries together. And like, eventually it gets to cell being that ultimate big bad at the end of the arc. But in this movie, it's like, it starts with the knockoff Cybermen and then it, graduates up to old the frail man <laughs> the well the, yeah the old frail man who secretly has a machine gun arm uh the three bio warriors with the stupid food names from toriyama's home city uh they mind control piccolo they intend to turn roshi they intend to capture goku and then there's like a, a brain and a robot body like the graduation of having to go up through all of these different uh villains throughout it just kind of reminded me of like a quick version of the android saga and like mm -hmm. I, I realized that the android saga wasn't made like that on purpose it's just like my own coincidental observation but it kind of did work out that way both ways except one was you know a long drawn out process done week to week at a comic book that required an editor to tell tori i'm gonna stop fucking off you have any mm -hmm. uh, thoughts about the end of this movie man i have a lot of thoughts um for one i agree with you i do think that Willow. It's undeniable. You have, a, you have a mad scientist in Dragon Ball. You have to compare it to, to Dr. Jirou. Like, Bro, it, even their names sound similar. Weedo, Jiro, like what the hell? Yeah, and they're both, of course, if you want to look at it technically, both refer referencing parts of machinery, you know, gears and wheels and all that, you know. But it's like, what I think is interesting about Wheelow is that his motivation is so totally different. Like Dr. Jirou, he really wants to just kill Goku. That's his central defining motive. He's really pissed off. This kid fucked with his plans. Whereas Wheelow, he's just like, listen, the world fucked with me. I'm going to get the best freaking body, come back with the ultimate, with the, the ultimate body. And then just kick everyone's snot out of them. I'm going to put myself in a hole for 50 years, get the biggest, buffest, baddest brain <laughs> and bod at the same time. I didn't really focus on the bod part, but, you know, I got a couple leads on some very promising young vessels. One by the name of Master Roshi. Oh, shit. Master Roshi's 350 years old. What the? <sighs> All right. Who's this Goku? The Son Kun. Who's this motherfucker? Exactly. That's what it comes down to. And what I like about that especially this, of course, undeniably, I have to compare it to the freaking um, universal uh, monster mad scientists like Dr. Frankenstein. In every single Frankenstein movie, well, that's not true. Really, Frankenstein, the last half of the Frankenstein cycle, 
mad scientist motivation was always get a young body, put the brain in the Frankenstein monster and have them like become the strongest monster in the world. That's the plot of, um, what was it? Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. That's the plot of Ghost of Frankenstein with the villain Igor puts his brain into the monster. I couldn't help but draw comparisons between Universal Monster Frankenstein movies and in uh, We Love. Are you telling me that Tobey Animation back in the year <laughs> of our Lord 1990 ripped off a fucking Abbott and Costello Frankenstein movie? Probably. I mean, they had the rights to Frankenstein. <laughs> what was it, Toei? No. No, you're thinking of Toho having the rights to Frankenstein Toho. for Frankenstein versus yeah. uh, the Conquers CD. the World. Conquers the World. All right. What was the one that he got scratched from? Uh, he got. I'm wearing a fucking Godzilla shirt. You think of, I know this? The War of the Gargantuans was that Frankenstein? Was that supposed to be a Frankenstein film? I know he was scrapped from King Kong versus Godzilla. Like that was originally going to be Frankenstein. Oh, is that because what I'm they, thinking of? And then they brought in Godzilla. Yeah, they were supposed to be yeah. King Kong versus Frankenstein. They couldn't get they couldn't get Frankenstein, so they brought in Godzilla instead. Yeah, because that's what they have the lightning bolt power is that King Godzilla Kong just develops is fucking cool. We fucking go. I want to see my Goku versus Godzilla thing eventually. I mean, I mean, Wrath of the Dragon is basically that movie, the Haruta Garn Tapion movie. That's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And this that is pretty awesome. This is like a halfway marker in terms of like the size of the foe with his big robot bo- brain body, you know? Like he was a pretty big man. This is one of the biggest non transformed Dragon Ball villains, Willow. Like thinking about it, like I, I don't think it really com- anyone other compares to that. It's like, He's a colossal cyborg, essentially. I mean, Lord Slug, Giant Namekian, and then Haruta Garn. Non-transformed, I really want to specify. Okay. So, like, so like, you know, obviously Lord Slug and Piccolo, when he has his gigantism transformation, those are both bigger, obviously, and so is Vegeta when he becomes, like, a great ape. But I find it very interesting how he's just this naturally colossal figure so much so that it needs multiple to fight him at once. Mm. I think it's kind of cool. Um, so that's pretty much the end of this uh, world's strongest movie. However, there's one more notable music thing for me to mention before we wrap this up. Oh, and it all ends in them laughing, which is laughing yeah. in, in, in pan out. <laughs> <laughs> we blew that motherfucker up. That's great. We're not dead. <laughs> we, we just committed murder. <laughs> yeah. We just blasted that guy to the moon. Uh, and we get our first Dragon Ball Z movie ending song sang mm-hmm. by my best friend in the world, at least in my head. If I had a musical Japanese grandpa, it would be him. Uh, his name is Hironobu Kagayama. And he is singing the song Ikusa, which I'm not going to lie, man. Like, I know some of these songs so well. Like I can sing along to them with like the phonetic pronunciations because I've heard them millions of times throughout my life. Mm. This is not one of those songs for me. This song's actually dumb as fuck. It's and it's actually not a bad song, like once you get into it, but it starts so stupidly that you immediately have to dismiss it out of hand. But you get into it, it bumps a little bit, but I just want to, I want to show you guys why this, the beginning of this song sucks so much. And uh, 
I just want you to know that I, it's notable when they roll to the credits in this movie, they don't even let this intro that I'm about to bitch about. They don't even let it play. They cut it off. That's how bad it was. And so out of place. So here it goes. Kira Nobu Kageyama singing. I Kusa. Are you ready for this? I am very concerned, but also intrigued. Get it! And then it gets into the groove. But like, why is that man making loud grunting noises in between? Ugh, get it. I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. This is like when you're playing like bop it with a guy who's really into it. It makes guttural noises whenever he, hit, whenever he bops it. Spin it. Twist it. Right? Bop it good. Ugh. Twist this Ugh. time. Not three hops this time. Bop, bop, bop. Yeah, this song's not bad, but it's no, it's good so when you stupidly. The, once you get past the xylophone bop it noises, you're good to go. But I think I'm just waiting for a hook. Nah, I think it's just the hook. Oh wait, maybe we're gonna give it another like 30 seconds. Let's see. Hmm. Sounds like a solid pre-chorus. Nope. This is this song is called "The Hook Never Comes." So that's called this is "The Hook Never Comes." It feels like it's really like continuing to build to a point that never really gets there. Like it feels yeah. like I will say this: it doesn't really have that. What's the word I'm looking for? It, the chorus. It doesn't have a chorus. No, it doesn't have a chorus, but there's something else to it, too. It feels like it's because some songs don't really have a chorus, but you feel like they're building towards something that they reach. This song feels like it's aimless. buying time. Yeah, it's aimless. It's buying time for something that never comes. They're just like trying, you, to buy not, enough, they're just trying to buy enough time to hopefully let you forget about that crappy xylophone opening with the Bop It Man giving you instructions to get it and shit. Yeah, right. So it, I will say I will agree with you on that one. I, I think this movie has a lot of positives, but that's that ending song. It's at worst inoffensive and at best baffling. <laughs> um, I think at best for me, it's unremarkable. I'm just like, yeah, that song's fine, but like, it's not a banger, dude. There's no Ikari, no, no willpower, or like fucking Dergayu from fucking Dergayu from um. Wrath of the Dragon, like those are those are two Dragon Ball ending songs that are burned into my brain as well as some of the opening songs are, you know? If you put this song on a CD with a bunch of other ending songs, as the song you talk to your friends with over, you know? Like the song you say, oh, it's like, go, 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 go get some refills on drinks. Nah, so we'll be right back, guys. This song does not fucking make my CDR less for sure. This isn't this isn't part of your mixtape, dude. You should you should see. I still have like an old you know big iPod, like pre like a touchscreen iPod, like the one with the wheel and shit and the little. Oh thing. hell yeah! You should see the amount. Like it's got to be close to like two hundred Dragon Ball tracks on it of different shit. And I'm sure that this song's on it, but it is a song that I 
always immediately hear that dun, 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 next skip yeah no no i have that i had that i probably had that same thing for me yeah i, I don't think i had any of uh this song was never on that list either i think there was a few there's a lot of anime music on there but i don't think that was ever didn't have this song on there ever see the one i've heard the first part of it the one yeah, for Broly is twice, really but... good. Uh, Burn and Fight, I think, is the one for Broly. That song fucking bumps. Mm. Uh, the Kulu one was pretty cool, too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think the Return of Kulu one might be better. I can't remember. Yeah. I don't know. I Like, I I hear the songs, and I'm like, wait, which movie is that, too, again? I forget, you know. Uh, yeah. But this, this is not one of those songs for me. This is one that makes me go, oh, yeah, that's right. This is a, a movie-ending song to... Smear the legacy of all my other favorite movie ending songs. God damn it, the tenacity. Honestly, I forgot the song already and I just heard it. It goes get it. It's after that point. It's like a blur to me. And that's actually proof that the xylophone might be the best part of the song. Pull it. Because you remember it. Twist it. Good. Now pass it. Bop it again. This is wild. So, uh, yeah, man, that's going to be... a whole generation of people who have no idea what we're talking about right no, now. No, for real. And that's fine. They can go fuck themselves. You know, you, you youngins. Maybe this podcast ain't for you, dummies. You uh, I'm just kidding. We love you. We love you so much. Why don't you give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts where all the young, cool kids obviously are hanging out these days. You know what I'm saying? Would you say you would bop that like button? Ooh, bop the fuck that's out bad. of a like button. That's bad. That was really bad on my part. Yeah, it could have been worse, though. I mean, at least yeah, you're right. you made it work. You It was like a, you segued it into the call, the call to action. So thumbs up, dude. You know what the trick is? Pure confidence that what you're saying is actually intelligent. And you don't think about how dumb it is until after the fact. And, and then you cringe. Alcohol. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what causes it. A solid wine glass filled with whiskey will certainly make any joke you make sound intelligent. I mean, that's not fun. That's not the fun of doing the show. Just drinking and talking about Dragon Ball. So, oh yeah, it is. Uh, if you are a listener who likes to drink and talk about Dragon Ball, or maybe you just like to drink and listen to this podcast, that's cool too. We don't judge you. We're your friends, man. We got you back, dude. Why don't you let us know how you felt about this movie? Um, you can. Tweet at me at dbsuperdope1, Instagram at dbsuperdope. Um, I did want to get like a number thing though, like one to 10. What are you rating this movie as for you? One being the worst and 10 being the best. What do you uh, rate the world's strongest strongest guy in the world? If you don't rate this as like a nine, I'm going to slightly judge you. <laughs> oh, dude. No, this is like a, it's like a 70. It's, an, it's a solid 8.5 on the okay. scale. I would say... In the in the vast scheme of things, if um, Battle of Gods is like the ten for Dragon Ball, I feel like that's a fair point. History of Trunks and Bardock is like nines, and those two are interchangeable. I feel depending on my mood. I feel like they're both they, they hit different notes for me. This is a solid eight point five. Um, I think it, it it this and um, the Janimba one, the two I feel the most solid. They're also the ones I revisit the least. Yeah, I mean, that could be why you're giving them such fucking high marks, man. Because, I mean, this one actually has like a fairly linear, coherent story. The Geneva one, it's like, wait, what the fuck's going on again? You're a person who works on this machine, and now you're a big fat gold <laughs> thing, and now you're this purple red demon dude. Like, what the fuck? Like, well, the villain in Geneva is capitalism. <laughs> Afterlife capitalism. 
<laughs> I'm not sure who's got Fusion Reborn, but maybe I got to bring you back for that one. You've, I think the next one yeah. you've got is Fakatsu Noaf, if I'm not mistaken. Which I have a lot of feelings on as well. Uh, if you want to bring me back for anything for, before that, let me know. But uh, I have a lot of feelings on the Frieza, you know, on that Frieza movie. Also, speaking of cool ass songs, um, you, you really can't beat the. Um, Freaking the guys freeze death, you know, up, freeze yeah, up, freeze you know up, freeze up. Gotta kill your death beam. Gotta kill your face too. So wait, that's the second. That's the bandage of the second and op- second opening for Death Note. Yeah, yeah. Maximum the hormone, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, oh, uh, Kitty, fuck, dude. I like the Death Note Super Dope uh, podcast that we did for Patreon. If you you're not on Patreon, you'll have no idea what we're talking about. Even if you are on Patreon, you probably never listened to it. There's like 35 episodes of me, Feds, and Amber making fun of all the Death Notes. But when we get to that episode, oh, it's lots of fluffy kits and securities. Lots of fluffy dogs. I remember the rhythm in my head, but it's like, you know, lots of fluffy cats and security or something like that. I can see the, I can see that parody right there. A lot of, when I think of the second death note opening, I think of like them putting like the lucky star characters into that opening. That was back on, like back in YouTube when death note was on, I think that's like adult swim. There were so many parodies of that second death note opening. And one of them, which maybe on YouTube for all I know, I might want, I might look this up after the fact. Um, there was like this one where they just superimposed like the Lucky Star cast in mm-hmm. the place of like the Death Note characters, just having them scream, and it surprisingly fit. Though I guess now if you did that with like the Watamote characters, that would work better. But like I don't know. Uh, I'm not not a fan of that second opening song. Uh, The first opening song is one of the greatest opening songs in all of anime ever. Oh, easily. No, I think it's a guard. I think personally, I. uh, So I I do like my metal, but there's something so scratchy about that one. It doesn't fit. I like the buildup. I like like the scene with like their whether you can hear them like building and ramping up. But whenever they go into total scream mode, like it just gets too scratchy for me and it gets too shrill. And I'm like, there it needs really to be some hit. semblance of a melody for me in the first yeah. opening song, nightmare, the world, that song. I did a, it. I, I did a dope out. Actually, it's probably my favorite acoustic cover I've ever done for an anime opening is probably the death Note one. I probably just dropped some of it in. So you're fucking welcome. You listener fucks. You want to hear a whole <laughs> podcast about death note. Patreon.com slash Dragon Ball Super Dope with that $5 tier. Plus, you get invited to do the show sometimes. You hang out and talk shit in the Discord. You get access to early stuff. Like, this conversation with Ant has probably been posted there for a few weeks now. So, oh, yeah. You know, don't be sleeping on that extra Death Note podcast where I have all sorts of thoughts about uh, lots of fluffy cats and securities, lots of fluffy cats. Do you have lots of thoughts on Nisa Mane, the most. I do. People have reactions to that character. And, and, and to this day, I'm still like, I think so. I think now this is a, a good take. This is a problematic take. I understand. But I think a lot of my take on Misa Amane has a lot to do with how fucked up it is of light to be doing to her what uh, he's doing, like taking mm-hmm. advantage of her in the way that he's taking advantage of her. But Misa Amane like also has that thing broken in her brain where she's like I don't care I'll do whatever the fuck I need to to be able to protect this person even if we both have like the same exact set of powers we both have a fucking death god following us around making things happen Mm -hmm. for us I still will sacrifice all for this light guy and it's like 
damn late. Like you're a shitty person for taking advantage of it. But also this entire show to this point has just been you writing people's names out of notebooks to kill them. So I guess I can't really say that you're mean or any worse for taking advantage of Misa Amane, this famous, amazing pop star princess lady. Misa Amane would be the smartest girl in the room if she wasn't in the same show with Light and L. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah that's, what ter- that's what's terrifying about her. She's actually really freaking smart. The problem is she's obsessed. And the rest of the cast are like absurdly intelligent. Yeah, and that obsession proves to be her downfall, go figure. Exactly. Um, man, we should actually, one of our most popular podcast episodes, month over month since it's been released, is a, an episode that we did early on about Death Note called Death Note, Why It Worked. Oh, yeah. I, I, Death Note works so well. Uh, bring me on for any podcast talking about why a certain anime works. I'm down for that. Hell yeah, dude. We should probably do some uh, some stuff like that in the future. But uh, I think the next one we'll have you on for is going to be Battle of Gods in a few months. I don't know the pace at which these are going to continue to come out, but we are currently at movie uh, five in terms of Dragon Ball history. Uh, Mm -hmm. That would make uh, Pokatsu no F, I think, the 17th or the 19th. Yeah, I think it's after. Yeah, yeah, second to last from Broly, right? So the 19th. I'll be around for I'll be married by then. Oh my god! Most likely, maybe even crazy. be a maybe even be a homeowner. Yeah, actually, you know about that. <laughs> yeah, I understand, dude. If you can wait, wait because this shit is no, no, not. I don't think you understand. I actually kind of got into contract. Oh, that's good. In fact, I got into contract for a house. Nothing's wrong with it, right? Ago. Your house the inspection. Co- your house inspection. House inspection went through. They, there was an oil tank they found. The it's under the buyer's responsibility based on New Jersey state law. So they have to remove it. Otherwise, the deal goes through. Otherwise, nothing wrong with it. Nothing has to be fixed or improved. Is, and I got it for a deal. Like, I mean, granted, relatively speaking, because obviously the market is absurd and ridiculous yeah. and everyone's overpaying. But it wasn't, I didn't have to pay that much, pay much over asking. It was great. It was, but, um, it because so I've been posting on Twitter some of my horror stories and you even responded like, don't do it. <laughs> No, dude, right. like you're gonna, I mean, even like that, whatever house you're gonna buy right now, I don't know a thing about this house, but I guarantee it if you bought it a year ago, you would be paying like thirty thousand dollars less. Oh, I would say so. Probably and it's not certainly. because the house is appreciated in any kind of fucking substantial way. It's only appreciated in terms of market relation to it, in terms of how much people are willing to overpay with cash offers because. I mean, a lot of people, if they've got cash to spend or if they've got money to put into a new property and, you know, open up a new line of credit on a mortgage while stuff is still historically low, like that's a safe investment for them. So, so long as you're always going to be going up against those people, especially in the climate of this market, I don't they need to put some kind of fucking laws in place about like God, private yeah. equity firms and like foreign fucking uh, investors and even like landlords who own oh, like yeah. 20, 20, 30 fucking 40 plus properties themselves. Like, bro. Oh yeah. You don't need I, that I, much fucking free recurring money. You just don't. I'll tell you this. There was a house that we were looking at my fiance and I, and we were, we put a bit on it, you know, and it was already over asking price. Like we, we went over asking price already on it. The person who won went 70 over asking price, waived inspection, waived appraisal, waived everything, and you know, and pay all in cash. Yep, private equity. It was all private equity. They're just gonna yep. knock it down, rent it out, whatever they're gonna do with it. 
And it's like, how you can't compete with that. You can't compete with like a private, especially in, in Northern New Jersey, where there is so much. I'm very familiar with that market, dude. Oh yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It was a cash rich market. Just because everyone's leaving New York, you know, it was like a, lot, a mass exodus from the four of the five boroughs. Brooklyn's doing okay in terms of people moving into it, but people are leaving New York and they want to still keep their jobs in New York. So they're going to like the Northern New Jersey. It, it's a, it's a big mass exodus in this area. Um, and the places close to public transport are the ones that are getting the worst um, in terms of the buying market. So we just didn't move next to public transport and we were good to go. <laughs> Smart, man. Take it outside the yeah. box. Well, it, it was just luck. We realized after the fact, oh, wait, that's why we got it. Right. <laughs> we just thought, oh, nice house. And then we're like, wait a second, it's not close to public transport. Yeah. It's a little out of the way. No one's coming here for that reason. Yeah, no public amenities really available to me as a, as a resident. Word, word, word. Uh, cool. Trials and tribulations of becoming a homeowner. I congratulate you. Hopefully everything goes well in the uh, closing process, the offer process and all that, but no, you yeah, know, in New Jersey, we'll give you a beverage at the, at the house. Hell yeah, dude. I, uh, I do like New Jersey. I I'm Kevin Smith opened that podcast castle studio thing down there. Do you hear about that? I, I heard people mention it, but no details. I want to go visit there. Fuck yeah, you do. It's awesome. It sounds awesome. <laughs> and I heard it's on the other side of the building from the quick stop, which uh, I've been to the quick stop once when I was a kid mm-hmm. in Leonardo, New Jersey. So that's why I assume this podcast castle is. I don't know. My point is I kind of wanted to make an excuse to go to New Jersey anyway. So I may take you up on the beverage, man. No, oh, yeah. Um, fucking passing through. I'll give you, I'll give you whatever I can, I can throw together. And I got yeah. this, um, got like a gift, a uh, Kindle, um, book on like freaking nerdy hot nerdy um cocktails so we need an excuse to try some of these out you know you, you may drink dry ice at one point but you know it's good to go as a as an attempt <laughs> all right man sounds like we're gonna have to cut the uh, put this plan into motion um you gave it a eight eight and a half of ten i gave it about a seven and a half of ten for uh, the world's strongest or the strongest guy in the world um hell yeah hell yeah so much for taking the time where can people uh, check out more of your work and keep in touch with you well you can definitely follow me on twitter um i guess you have the link of my twitter in the doobly-doo below but um i'll go with but if you want to if you want me to spell that awkwardly for you it's a-g-r-e-m-u-g-l-i-a at twitter Grimuglia. We talk about the silent G every time we talk. Every fucking time. <laughs> but if you want to be my writing, I have writing on CBR, uh, the Anime Feminist, Anime Herald, uh, the Mary Sue I have some pieces on. Uh, Gaily Dreadful has had a piece published in there recently. Uh, various publications. Well, go check out the Twitter and he'll have links to his work. You can go check out the stuff there. Hey, I told you the other day, I saw you got memed, right? Oh God! What, what yeah. Was it so, <laughs> so for the listener, the meme was uh, some kid like took a screenshot of a comic book resources article, and it was like Sailor Moon can solo the Dragon Ball Z universe in parentheses. Yes, yes you did send me this. Yes, I seriously <laughs> just said that. Close parentheses, and I'm like, ooh, shit, that's a brave statement. Like, I don't really know Sailor Moon, so like, uh, I, I, I also, who fucking cares? But. It gets really, so upset. I don't really know <laughs> Sailor right? But like, I saw that and I'm like, oh man, this guy's definitely baiting some kids, man. This is some fucking, this is some hard truths to swallow one way or another. And then I look, the byline is Anthony Gregoria, <laughs> and I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. So, my, so when I pitched that to my editor, he was like, yeah, no. Oh, no. She was like, 
that's a good idea. I'm like, no, listen, listen. Think of this. the hate traffic. <laughs> Think of the hate traffic. To be fair, I'm I'm not wrong. Sailor Moon is magical girls are the yeah. most powerful anime characters in all anime consistently because there are no there's no scaling. They could just destroy universes and warp time and travel like freaking 90 bazillion times speed of light. And there's no point where they ever question that. They just do it. It's like Golden Age Superman. Mm. Like Golden Age Superman, he can destroy a solar system with a sneeze and no one ever bats an eye at it. it just oh, soups. Saving the day again by yeah. sneezing and destroying a solar system. But you get to like Bronze Age Silverman, they give them rules and regulations. With, with Magical Girl stories, they don't have any regulations. They just go at it. <laughs> and it's great. Usagi Solo is the DBZ verse. You heard it here. Yeah, she, just, she can destroy the whole universe. Or she maybe, does. You, maybe you heard yeah, it from the and, meme first. I don't know. Well, easily. And she does in the manga, even. You know, it's just wild. Sailor Moon is um, Sailor Moon's interesting. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on Sailor Moon. Huh. Well, maybe one of these days I'll watch some Sailor Moon. We could talk about that shit. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> in the meantime, though, let's finish. Uh, I got to sing a song about the show and the stuff that we just talked about and the world's stronger. Get some xylophones out. Yeah, right. Get it! Xylophones are not up in my song.